ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Are the actions against Donald Trump and Boris Johnson assaults on freedoms in two of the world's greatest democracies? I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines. Also coming up, the Chinese Communist Party's meddling in Canadian domestic politics. In 2019, uh, it's alleged that about $250,000 went to 11 candidates um, to uh, help push pro-Beijing policies. Then in 2021, the Chinese Communist Party sort of ramped up to put pressure on the Chinese population in Canada, the you know, Canadians of, of Chinese descent. And it looks at, like as many as 13 or 15 seats went to the Liberals that might possibly have gone to the Conservatives. That was Patricia Adams from Toronto. Stay with us for more on how Australia is seen as a global role model on how to guard democracies against Chinese foreign interference. But first, well, these are dark days for Australia's Liberal Party. It's out of power across the mainland and it faces serious challenges. Those include attracting younger voters, winning back professional women and reconciling the conservative and liberal wings of the party. So is the Liberal Party damaged goods in Australian politics? Tony Abbott was Prime Minister from 2013 to 2015, a senior Cabinet Minister in the Howard Government, and a Federal Liberal MP from 1994 to 2019. Tony Abbott, welcome back to the program. Tom, it's wonderful to be with you. Is the Liberal Party doomed? Of course it's not. Uh, there are ebbs and flows in politics, and it just so happens that uh, uh, the tide is out at the moment, but it will come back in. It always will, and it always does. Um, I can remember back in 2008, the senior elected Liberal then was the Lord Mayor of Brisbane. Uh, I think much the same was true uh, at different times during the 90s. And we came back magnificently in the shape of the Howard government, and we came back magnificently in 2013, and we'll come back again. Uh, To be honest, given all of the rather left-wing things that the Albanese government is trying to do, starting with the voice. I think the next election is very winnable, and I can already see the sorts of issues that Peter Dutton is going to be fighting on. He's going to be fighting over Labor's energy policy madness. He's going to be fighting over the fact that uh, under Labor, the economy is going backwards fast. He's going to be fighting over the fact that under Labor, Young people are increasingly priced out of the housing market, and uh, this is where the superannuation for housing policy uh, was an excellent liberal innovation. It's just a pity that at the last election it came in so little and so late. But I think the next election is eminently winnable, and as I said back in the mid-'90s, there's nothing wrong with the Liberal Party that winning an election won't fix. We'll get to some of those issues in a moment, Tony, but uh, your successor as Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, he all too often argues that the party has moved increasingly to the right-wing fringe, which alienates itself from what he says is an increasingly more progressive middle Australia. Is that the case? Well, I'd like to see uh, the evidence for this move to the right. I mean, 
Can you tell me some of the Liberal Party's right-wing policies? Well, Malcolm Turnbull's not alone on this point. I mean, he's the journalist uh, Chris Wallace. She was on this program recently. Most people are more concerned about how am I going to pay my power bill? How am I going to meet my mortgage payment? Can I find a house to rent? Uh, meanwhile, the, the coalition seems to bang on with these really fringe US Republican style issues and get a lot of applause from it, for it, you know, from the conservative media. But, you know, most Australians don't care. And the coalition, to the extent that it bangs on about fringe right-wing issues, is not connecting with regular voters. That's Chris Wallace on why the coalition spends too much time on divisive culture war, and she was referring to transgender issues. Uh, They, of course, have been playing out at uh, both the federal level, but especially in the Victorian Liberal Party. Tony Abbott. Well, look, uh, she didn't actually cite uh, any fringe right-wing issues. Well, the transgender one is what she meant. All I know is that a couple of Liberal MPs turned up at rallies that were meant to assert women's right to their own spaces. And as far as I can work out, that's what people like J.K. Rowling and Martina Navratilova are on about. And last time I looked, neither of them were right-wing lunatics. (laughs) So what are the main things that the Liberals are talking about at the moment? Well, obviously we're talking about power prices because they're going through the roof because of Labor's emissions obsession. Uh, Obviously we're talking about housing uh, and how do young people get into the market and we think that they should have access to their super, uh, which Labor wants to lock up for its own purposes. We think they should have access to the, their super, at least in terms of getting their first home. Uh, and obviously we're against Labor's voice uh, because it's uh, uh, wrong in principle and it would be bad in practice. Now, I think these are all very mainstream issues And I think they're providing Peter Dutton and his team with a firm basis on which to win the next election. Ten years ago in September, you won a landslide election over Labor and Kevin Rudd. It was one of the biggest landslides in Australian history behind Malcolm Fraser's two efforts in 75, 77, I think of Harold Holt in 66. But many Conservatives and Liberals have lamented that, Tony, you indulged in big government, a big spending policy agenda You also supported safe schools. Uh, On reflection 10 years later, how did your government represent sound centre-right principles? So, Tom, you're referring to the 2014 budget, I presume. (laughs) You're not suggesting, are you, for a second, that the 2014 (laughs) budget was a big government budget? Certainly that wasn't the way it was presented at the time. Yeah, but the spending as a percentage of GDP increased for a lot of those labour spending monuments. Not true. I don't have the actual figures in front of me, but I think there was a real cut uh, in that particular year of 1% in overall federal government spending. And the following year, there was a nominal increase, but again, I think there was another real cut. So in my time, government decreased. Now, I want to address this myth that I supported the Safe Schools program. Mm. You might remember, Tom, Safe Schools was a quasi-Marxist gender fluidity program masquerading as an anti-bullying program. It was actually a Gillard government program. Uh, Yes, uh, it came into operation uh, in 2014, but the truth is uh, I never knew about this at the time. I can remember going back and looking at it after the event 
and the parliamentary secretary, whose job it was uh, to launch this thing, because the department said, oh, look, uh, one of our federal programs is starting uh, on the particular date, go off and launch it, please, specifically said, uh, this is a program of the Gillard government. It is not a program of the current government. It's not like the authors of Safe Schools advertised uh, to the Abbott government that this was actually a gender fluidity program. And frankly, I'm sick of being defamed on this, Tom. I really am sick uh, of being fitted up, framed over this Safe Schools program. It, it was an abominable program. It should never have been put into practice and had the Abbott government known exactly what it was like, uh, and that only came to light subsequently, it never would have been started. Yep. It was the Gillard government uh, that put this program into place. Many other Liberals will agree with you on all of that, but what about the changes in urban demography that are driving many old Liberal voters to the Teals and the Greens? Just to recap, it's not just your old seat of Warringah, uh, that you lost to a so-called uh, Teal Independent, but Rowan Bishop's old seat of McKellar, Joe Hockey's old seat of North Sydney, Wentworth in Sydney, the, the Crown Jewels uh, in Brisbane. You've got Ryan and Brisbane. They went uh, to the Greens. Uh, Curtin in Perth went to the Teals. Kuyong, Robert Menzies' old seat. Mm. Goldstein in Melbourne. Even Higgins' Labor. What's going on here? Well, Tom, it is a bit of a worldwide phenomenon. Rich people are moving to the left and poor people are moving to the right. The important thing is how do you win an election? And you win an election in Australia by winning 50% of the seats, and it doesn't matter where they are as long as you've got them. Uh, as for the teal seats, we will win them back. Uh, we will win them back when a bad Labor government is attacking the economic interests of the rather well-to-do people who live there uh, and that's exactly what the Albanese government is doing now. We won't win them back by trying to outteal the teals. Just let's go back to an, an earlier question. Uh, yes, uh, I did win in a landslide in 2013. Uh, no one accused me of winning by being anything other than a strong centre-right conservative. And history shows that the Liberal Party, the Liberal National Coalition, win elections uh, when we are strong parties of the centre-right. Uh, we don't win elections uh, by being labour light because uh, if you're presented with uh, a, a real left-wing party and a fake left-wing party, you'll go for the real thing. Yeah, but if Harold Wilson said a week is a long time in politics, then a decade is an eternity, hasn't the country shifted left on a wide range of issues? Just talk about the uh, the Lochnane Hume, this was the post-election Liberal Review. Mm. Now, you say the Liberals will win back those teal seats by not trying to out-teal the teals, but what about the Liberal Party's performance among female professional voters? Now, the Liberal Party holds only three of the top 30 electorates for professional women. That's compared with 15 previously. Isn't that a problem for the Liberal Party? Uh, look, the important thing is to, is to win seats, and we win seats back um, not by practising identity politics, uh, but by going to the public with a strong and plausible set of policies. Now, what, what are the issues that are currently troubling people? Well, they're worried about their cost of living. 
They're worried about their job security. Uh, they're worried about how they move around our increasingly crowded cities. They're anxious about the overall strategic outlook for our country. And on all of those issues, the Liberal Party uh, does and can uh, present a very strong alternative to the ALP. Um, I, I don't think you win elections by saying, oh, look, uh, uh, what do we do to buy off Community X or what do we do uh, to pander to Community Y? Uh, you win elections by asking yourself, what is going wrong with the country right now? What are policies that we can put in place that will improve those problems, which will address those problems, and which represent liberal conservative values? That's, that's how uh, Malcolm Fraser won an election. That's how John Howard uh, won elections. And that's that was always my approach. Yeah. If you look at younger people, though, uh, Tony, and this is a trend around the United States and Britain, their political instincts are well to the left of people like you and me. They're very anxious about the housing affordability crisis. They're concerned about climate change. Uh, millennials, Gen Z, they take all the polls show a benign view of socialism. So how then does a centre-right party win over the those young people? Well, I don't think we win them over by pretending to be socialists when we're not. Um, <laughs> I think they've got a pretty pretty strong BS detector. Uh, I think we win them over uh, by coming up with coherent, uh, realistic policies to address their problems. And as I said, uh, Labor's uh, proposal is to just keep everyone uh, renters for life. And that's hardly going to appeal to young people who'd love to own their own homes. So, so look, Tom, um, we can wallow in gloom and doom uh, and say it's all hopeless and uh, the only way to succeed is to ape the, the opposition, but I think that's completely wrong. Um, I don't say that uh, you're always going to win elections because in a democracy there's nearly always going to be alternation between the two main parties. But the best way for Liberals to win is to be true to themselves. And the best way for Liberals to govern is to reflect the kind of uh, Liberal Conservative policies which the Menzies government, uh, the Fraser government, mm. the Howard government, um, and indeed uh, the Abbott-Turnbull-Morrison government at its best reflected. Yeah, you mentioned the liberal conservative consensus within the Liberal Party, the so-called broad church that John Howard has often talked about. But what about the very real divisions over the voice? I mean, doesn't that show the Liberal Party is having great difficulty in reconciling the conservative and the smaller liberal wings of the party? There's two or three liberals who are in favour of the voice, but the overwhelming majority of the party uh, thinks that this is a very bad move indeed. Uh, it will um, introduce race or ancestry into our constitution. Uh, it will reinforce the separatism, which is at the heart of Indigenous disadvantage. Uh, it will make our system of government even more gummed up than it already is. Uh, the difference between us and the Labor Party, of course, Tom, is that we don't expel people uh, for expressing a different view. 
Um, that's why often enough uh, you can find one or two liberals on the fringes who uh, might politely dissent from uh, whatever the particular mainstream view is at the time. Um, look at John Howard's border protection policies, policies that worked, uh, policies that the Labor Party said it adopted. There were always two or three liberals. I can think of Bruce Baird in particular, uh, who, uh, who were critical, Petro Giorgio. Uh, they were outspoken critics of the Howard government's border protection policies, but it didn't stop them being implemented and it didn't stop them working. So I wouldn't be too fussed over the fact that one or two in my view, misguided liberals want to support the introduction of an extraordinarily illiberal principle into our constitution uh, that people should be treated differently on account of their ancestry. Extraordinary illiberal proposal, but the polls do show majority support. There was a Guardian poll, I think this was Essential Media, showing 60% this week for the yes side. And the yes side, as you well know, Tony, it has a massive, I think it's something like a 10 to 1 ratio in terms of uh, fundraising superiority over the no side. You've even got the big philanthropists like the Ramsey Foundation giving $5 million to the yes side. The no side has nothing like that. So what are the chances of the no side? Well, I've never thought that elections can be bought. And in the end, I think that uh, elections or referenda in this country are determined by the weight of argument, not by the weight of money. And uh, you're absolutely right, Tom. Uh, there has been an avalanche of money uh, coming from <clears throat> a whole lot of the people who should know better for the yes case. But uh, it's certainly not going to stop people like me arguing as strongly as we can. Uh, that this is, as I said earlier, wrong in principle and bad in practice. And when you've got people like Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine leading the fight, um, I'm very confident uh, that in the end, uh, people will be on our side. Tony Abbott, great to have you back on RN. It's wonderful to be with you, Tom. That was former Prime Minister... Tony Abbott, who's contributed to a new book called Dignity and Prosperity, The Future of Liberal Australia, that's published by Connor Court. And a disclaimer, I've also contributed a chapter to the book. On RN, this is Between the Lines with me, Tom Switzer. Up next, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. Well, they rose in tandem, now they're sinking in tandem. Both Trump and Johnson, leaders respectively of America's Republican Party and Britain's Conservative Party. They both won power by capturing many working class constituencies, Trump taking back the Rust Belt states in America's industrial heartland, while Boris smashed the red wall of blue collar seats in Northern England and the Midlands. And according to my next guests, Trump and Johnson lost high office for similar reasons. They lacked personal discipline. They indulged in administrative chaos. They failed to accept responsibility for wrongdoing, and they lacked even a shred of integrity. Both Trump and Johnson, we're told, they deserved to lose power. But what are we to make of the latest campaign against both men? Is it designed to make sure that neither Trump nor Johnson ever comes back? Well, to get a sense of the political dynamics at play, and the consequences for American and British conservatism, let's turn to our panel. Henry Olson is a columnist at the Washington Post, and Greg Sheridan is foreign editor at the Australian. Greg, Henry, welcome to the program. 
Good to be with you, Tom. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Now, let's start with the Trump indictment for illegally retaining classified documents. Henry, an indictment of a former president who is again running for president next year. Your thoughts? It's totally unprecedented, and it's created a firestorm here in the United States. Many, if not most, Republicans think that it's politically motivated, especially given that the leading Democratic candidate, Hillary Clinton, had facially similar issues going into the 2016 campaign, but yet the Department of Justice chose not to indict her. Uh, That said, these seem to be reasonably serious charges, and there's no way that Trump's going to wiggle out of them. It's something that's going to transfix the country for probably the remainder of the calendar year. And meanwhile, Boris Johnson has resigned as a as an MP because he faced censure by a parliamentary committee. Greg, you've written that the campaigns against both of them, both Trump and Johnson, are, and I'm quoting you, shocking abuses of process in which their opponents are doing as much damage to their country's respective political systems as anything alleged against Trump or Johnson. Tell us more. Well, um, and of course, it's a bit unfair, Tom, to equate because Johnson, although he deserved to lose office, he, you know, he didn't try to, you know, overturn an election. He doesn't traffic in hatred. He's he's a different personality from Trump. But I think both men should be defeated at the ballot box. I think it's a terrible thing in parliamentary systems where a committee can just say, guess what, you're unpopular, so we're going to ignore the fact that you were voted in by your electorate and throw you out. Uh, that's that's really tremendously undemocratic. And Trump should be defeated at the ballot box, uh, I think the Stormy Daniels um, indictment against him is just an outrageous abuse of process. And um, even in this matter, uh, who knows what prosecutors might have discovered if they pursued Hillary Clinton or indeed the Biden family with the same vigour. Um, national security presidents do have all kinds of prerogatives about um about uh, releasing documents. The Wall Street Journal argues that there's a certain tension between the Presidential Records Act and the very rarely invoked Espionage Act because it's very um, loosely and widely written. But I just think in principle, uh, it's a very bad thing to defeat someone who is unacceptable through legal stratagems Mm. rather than through... um, rather than through defeating him at the ballot box. And let me make clear, if I were an American... Uh, I'd rather cut off my right arm than vote for Trump. But uh, but I, I want him, if he runs, to win or lose the Republican primary and then hopefully to lose the election. A final thought is I think the Democrats are very, very cynical here because they want Trump, much as they say they detest everything about Trump, they want Trump to be the centre of attention. They want him to be the Republican nominee because they think they can beat him in November. So they do a lot of things, in fact, to fan Trump and to make sure that he remains at the centre of American politics. Is that is that right, Henry Olsen? The Democrats, they want Trump to be the candidate in 2024 because it increases their chances of winning the election. But also, why can't Trump just be defeated at the ballot box, as Greg Sheridan says? Well, certainly Trump can be defeated at the ballot box. He has been defeated at the ballot box, although he has convinced many of his supporters that was not, in fact, the case. Um, I think the question here is, uh, a couple of things. You know, first of all, uh, you've got the Democrats who certainly benefit by keeping him front and center and denying space 
for Republican alternatives. Secondly, you have a national security state that has been generally outraged about Trump's desire to change longstanding American policy since before his 2016 election. And to be able to use this to, in their mind, perhaps sideline him is something that they would justify as a, a defense of national security. But it is incredibly difficult to use this. And if what we find is that once Trump's legal team actually gets to look at the evidence and discover their own evidence. If it's not as slam bang airtight as the indictment makes it look to be, I think you might very well see a counter reaction set in, not necessarily pro-Trump, but anti the administration for its politicization of the legal process. And we should remember that this is not the end of Trump's legal troubles. I mean, there are more investigations. They're still underway. Uh, There's an investigation about um, his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And in Georgia, uh, the district attorney there has said she expects action to come by August. And yet poll after poll shows that Trump is overwhelmingly the favourite for the Republican Party primaries. Greg Sheridan, how do we get to this point where multiple investigations, now a federal indictment, doesn't seem to shift Republican primary voters' opinion? Well, I do think Trump has done a great deal to damage the culture of American politics. So I'm I'm a moderately conservative person, but as a journalist, I don't really have a a dog in any fight. I, as a voter, I vote on both sides of, of domestic politics. But Trump himself has done a great deal to damage the credibility of political institutions. Having said that, so have his opponents. Um, the uh, Russian collusion uh, allegations against him turned out to be largely false. He was uh, you know, he did a lot of really bad things, but he was alleged to do a lot of things that he that he never did. And I think this has made people very cynical about uh, both institutions of justice and institutions of national security. We had the famous case during the last election of the Hunter Biden tape, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop, and 50-odd um, former professional intelligence senior people said this looks like Russian disinformation. Well, that turned out to be disinformation. Mm. It wasn't Russian disinformation. It was Hunter Biden's laptop. And um, this panic, I mean, Trump has a quality, breaks everyone's mind, you know, both his supporters (laughs) and his opponents. And as a journalist, the hardest thing is to retain a sense of balance about Trump. (laughs) You know, as president, as president, he told lies, did a lot of terrible things. He did some good things. So if you ever wrote a column saying, he did some some good thing. The Trump uh, haters would would you know accuse you of being in his pay. And if you ever wrote a column saying how bad he was, the Trump supporters would accuse you of being a servant of the United Nations or something. But I, I think the whole that's a long-winded way of saying I think the whole business of Trump has, in the minds of a large number of American voters, discredited national security institutions and justice institutions. Well, Henry Olson, what does all this mean for the future of the Republican Party? I mean, the the US conservative movement, um, and and you've written a lot about this over the years, Henry, that, you know, here's Trump. He's essentially stood the old conservatives' uh, mantra of small state, free trade principles, Reaganism. He stood them on their heads. So what's the future of a Republican Party and conservative governance in the United States? It depends on what you mean by conservative governance, that... 
uh, it's pretty clear that small government conservatism is in the retreat worldwide, uh, but for very good reasons, because small government, uh, genuine small government conservatism was never what most developed countries wanted. They wanted a limitation on the growth of the state, not an actual small state. And because what we've learned over the last 20 or so years means that there are dislocations that need to be dealt with by state action. The Republican Party's future in America in large part depends on what comes after Trump. You know, whether Trump is the nominee or not, at some point in the not so distant future, this guy has to leave the stage. Um, and then the question is, what comes after Trump? Does it have a reflection of what American public opinion, open to voting for a center-right party, actually is and have a charismatic figure demonstrating it? Or do you have an American version of what's happening in many English-speaking center-right parties around the world, which is fratricide, as the old guard refuses to accommodate uh, new circumstances and the new uh, guard doesn't have the institutional power or charisma in order to uh, create a new alliance with the old guard? Greg Sheridan, Henry Olson has written that the sweet spot for mainstream centre-right parties, the Tories in Britain, the Republicans in the United States, maybe even here in Australia, the sweet spot is uh, to go left on economics, go right on culture and be hawks on China. Your sense? I don't think there's a, a set formula. Um, one of the problems for conservatives is that they have lost standing and leadership in most state institutions. One of the interesting things in Ron DeSantis is that he is trying to um, influence uh, quite consciously institutions like the education uh, authorities in his state of Florida and also to allow people uh, to open uh, what are in effect independent schools more easily. But I think broadly Henry's analysis is, is right. Uh, Boris Johnson uh, won a historic um, Conservative Party victory with just that formula. But of course, uh, mm. you know, as, as Henry observes, you need also a charismatic leader. You need a sense of tactical circumstances. Uh, I do think in the long run, um, Conservatives typically win by mobilising popular sentiment against elite uh, policy positions. But in the long run, that's not really... Uh, sustainable if you lose all the institutions, because then you simply end up implementing your opponent's uh, your opponent's policies. And I think cons fascinating thing in Western Europe, not in the Anglophone countries, is that most of the traditional conservative parties, uh, like Italy's Christian Democrats and the uh, the French um, Gaullists and so on, have been supplanted by parties that used to be far right but have become more mainstream conservative now. So the old conservative parties have died and um, and been supplanted by more um, more vigorous, uh, culturally conservative um, political parties. Uh, that sort of thing could happen in Australia. I think it's very difficult in America. And mainstream left-wing parties in Europe are in all sorts of trouble. Now, Greg just mentioned there that um, or reminded us that in late 2019, Boris Johnson and the Tories won a massive landslide election. Yet last year, Henry, they had three prime ministers in as many months. And frankly, the week's, the week's events indicates that they, they resemble nothing so much as a pub brawl. Henry Olsen, do, do the Tories have any hope? in your judgment, any hope to retain power next year? And that's after 15 years of being in power. Well, you know, any is a pretty strong word. I usually try to avoid 
making that sort of categorical 110% definitive statement 18 months before an election. But the short answer to your question is no. They are massively behind. Um, they show little signs of resurging. And the biggest worry when you look at the uh, details of the polls is that nearly 40% of the people who voted for them in 2020 tell pollsters they are either undecided, that they are not voting, or that they have switched to a protest party reform. And that doesn't include the one in six who have made the jump over to labor. Less than half of the people who voted for the Tories are telling pollsters that they will vote for them today. That is a massive loss of confidence that I cannot imagine fully recovering over the next 18 months, barring an amazing meltdown by Sir Keir Starmer and the Labour Party. Greg, should we doubt the Boris Johnson story is over? He's resigned as an MP, but could he make a political comeback in your judgment? I think that's very difficult. So parliamentary systems are very different from presidential systems, and he would have to um, win endorsement from the Conservative Party to run for an electorate which he could win. I mean, I, I think Johnson, like Trump, is the author of his own demise. Uh, he just, and, and it's in a sense, it's more tragic with Johnson because, um, uh, you know, I've interviewed Johnson a few times and I've interviewed Rishi Sunak and I think Johnson is the wittiest and cleverest and funniest person I've ever met, much less interviewed. <laughs> I think Sunak is a formidable formidable guy. And so I'd, I'd rate the Conservatives at having a two or 3% chance simply because they've got They've got a competent leader now. But I do think Johnson's parliamentary life is probably over. Although both Trump and Johnson, who I think traffic primarily in the dynamics of celebrity, are incredibly unpredictable. When Trump first ran, when Trump first declared himself to be a candidate in the primaries for 2016, I wrote columns uh, which were a million percent wrong, saying that he could, this man could never be president. <laughs> yes, well, one could possibly say that um, every time the critics like you, Greg, give uh, people like uh, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson the kiss of death, it's just mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued, Greg, Henry, thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. Thanks Thank you. So much. That was Greg Sheridan from the Australian newspaper and Henry Olsen from the Washington Post. Coming up, China's meddling in Canadian politics. Well, remember the Turnbull government's decision to put in place foreign interference legislation? It was bipartisan. It was designed to guard against any foreign meddling in Australian politics. And it was in response to several stories of Chinese interference. Beijing was furious, but Australia's foreign interference laws, they were seen as something of a trendsetter in the Western world. But not Canada, even though Justin Trudeau's government has been rocked by intelligence reports indicating he ignored warnings of Chinese interference in past elections. So 2019 and 2021. These were elections that he, Prime Minister Trudeau, won narrowly. Patricia Adams is a Toronto-based economist and executive director of China Watchdog Probe International. Patricia, welcome back to Between the Lines. Thank you very much, Tom. Now, what do we know of Beijing's meddling in Canada's elections? 
Well, as you said, it is now coming out that they meddled in the 2019 and 2021 elections. In 2019, uh, it's alleged that about $250,000 went to 11 candidates um, mm. to uh, help push pro-Beijing policies. Then in 2021, uh, the it looked as if the Conservatives were starting to surge in the polls. And at that point, the Chinese Communist Party sort of ramped up uh, through various social media um, outlets in Chinese to put pressure on the Chinese population in Canada, the you know Canadians of, of Chinese descent, uh, telling lies about the Conservative Party. Um, they had the Conservative Party had had a, a fairly tough policy uh, on China, and uh, they went after the Conservatives. And it looks at, like as many as thirteen or fifteen seats. Uh, went to the liberals that might possibly have gone to the conservatives. More and more information comes out. Every time the the federal government and the government of Justin Trudeau denies it, more information is leaked. The, the leaks are very interesting. They're coming from somebody or several people in the security services. Um, and they're going to two different newspapers or two different media outlets who are doing a, an excellent job of scrutinizing it, double-checking it, uh, presenting it, um, backing it up. And uh, it, it's it's extremely important information. Without the disclosure uh, from the leaker, we wouldn't know any of this. Yeah. Now, when we talk about a foreign interference, it's not just about elections. And you've set out there some disturbing details or allegations about the Chinese interference in the electoral process. But what about Canada's research institutions and universities or infrastructure? Uh, any reports of Chinese meddling there? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the newspapers, the Globe and Mail, has done terrific research on the influence peddling, if you want to call it that, at uh, universities. So, for example, uh, virtually every Canadian university has research programs with Chinese researchers who inevitably represent the government. They, they, no one teaches in a in a Chinese university without the endorsement of of the government. Um, the by their estimate, there are um, at at least ten of our leading universities have done oh as many as two hundred and forty joint papers with the National uh, University of Defense Technology. This is the Chinese um, uh, Defense University. We also had a very interesting case of the Winnipeg National uh, Microbiology Lab. It's a level four top security lab dealing with the, the most deadly viruses. Uh, there were two Chinese researchers there uh, who brought in a lot of students. And in 2019, I believe it was, they were marched out of there by the federal police, had their security clearance uh, revoked. And um, it turned out that they had shipped Ebola and Hennepa, two deadly viruses, to the Winnipeg Institute of Virology, which is, of course, now become famous as the as the source of the of COVID. Um, uh, it, despite that, the parliamentarians have been unable to get any information about why. No one knows what went on uh, at the Winnipeg uh, lab and why these two researchers were uh, were basically expelled. Um, from from the lab. And the federal government has really 
gone to the wall to stop uh, any disclosure of information. They refused to give it to a parliamentary committee. Why? Well, that's a very good question. Are we? I think it's it, it, everyone assumes that they are hiding something which is extremely damning. They they refused to give the information to the committee. The parliament declared them in contempt of parliament. The speaker tried to get the information from them. And the federal government then went to court to try to deny the disclosure of this information. And when that started to heat up, they called an election. This was in 2021. Um, and I think some people believe that's why they called the SNAP election. It was two years early in 2021, um, because they, they wanted basically to dissolve the investigation into, uh, into the, what happened at this, at this lab. But what the, the government's done is very interesting. Their technique is very interesting. They essentially set up committees which are answerable to the executive. They're not answer, answerable to parliament. And in the case of the Winnipeg lab, that's exactly what they've done. They've said, oh, we're going to set up a, a, a group of parliamentarians. They all have to swear to secrecy for life. Um, and they will answer to the prime minister. Uh, and so basically what Prime Minister Trudeau has been able to do is to set up a structure of institutions that look like they're protecting elections or that they're stopping foreign interference. But in fact, what they're doing is sort of channeling information to him, uh, to ministers, to the Privy Council office, to the prime minister's office, um, to uh, deputy ministers and so on, people who who essentially answer to him. So he so he's become sort of the vacuum. He's he's the one with the the national security information, and most of it's not getting through to Parliament. So there's very little parliamentary oversight, and they're stymied, um, you know, every step of the way because they're unable to force the government to disclose this this information to parliamentarians. All this comes, Patricia, at a time when relations between Ottawa and Beijing are at rock bottom. Am I right in saying that China is Canada's largest trade partner? No, the US is much larger. Oh, okay. That's interesting. In fact, China's um, really rather small as a, as a trade partner, which, which introduces a very interesting question. Why, why do our elites seem so determined to maintain friendly relations with the Chinese Communist Party. Yes. And I think it's because they they get benefits. You know, the universities, for example, depend on Chinese students uh, to pay high fees. Uh, they, they are getting research funds from the Chinese government. Uh, Canadian businesses want to sell uh, resource businesses to the Chinese. They generally overpay. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I think the, the elite wants to make money. They want to they want to invest in China. They want to buy um, goods that are, uh, you know, at, at lower labor costs and so on. So you, you you got this divide, I think, in the population between the elites and the people. And I I think the people can see the very real danger in Chinese influence over our elections. Yes. And uh, pe- people are saying no more. We're not going to put up with it. And Ottawa has expelled a Chinese diplomat who allegedly had targeted a Canadian lawmaker, I think he was conservative, and in response now, Beijing has ordered a Canadian diplomat to leave China. Meanwhile, China and Canada have been locked in this diplomatic dispute for something like three years over the arrest of a Huawei executive. So relations between the two countries are really rock bottom, aren't they? Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. The example is um, a member of parliament, Michael Chung, who has family who lives in Hong Kong. Um, he's a, a long-standing parliamentarian. Uh, he introduced a motion in 2021 to declare the Chinese treatment 
of the Uyghurs as a genocide. It was um, unanimously voted uh, and approved in the House of Commons, except for the liberal um, cabinet. They refused to even show up for the for the vote. And as a result of that, the Chinese government uh, then targeted Michael Chung and his family for threats. Oh. Uh, he was not informed of this by our the uh, CSIS, which is our uh, national security agency. Um, they they informed uh, deputy ministers, a minister, um, the national security advisor. This is two years ago. They 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 informed uh, really the entourage of the prime minister, and the prime minister claims that he never knew. Uh, the leader of the conservative party was also targeted. He has family that lives in Hong Kong. Um, also, another uh, NDP, which is are the Socialist Party in Canada, she was targeted. She also um, hails from Hong Kong. She was also targeted. And then another conservative member who was defeated. He was really the, the fellow who was um, the, the misinformation campaign was waged against him in the 2021 election. He had introduced a private member's bill for a foreign agent's registry similar to yours and modeled mm -hmm. really on the Australian one. And um, when he did that, he was targeted by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, various lies were put out and, and of course, lots of intimidation of uh, Chinese Canadians not to vote for him. So it now, now that we have four members of parliament who have been intimidated uh, by the Chinese government, their families threatened. And I think that has, that has really pushed things over the edge. I think people are, are outraged by that. And in terms of pushing back against Chinese coercion, especially tackling Chinese foreign influence, Patricia, how, I mean, you mentioned Australia there. How is Australia generally seen in Canada on this issue? Australia is the model. Uh, whenever you have witnesses, before we've got now three, sometimes four uh, parliamentary committees that are investigating this, national security advisors, former um, representatives from uh, CSIS, our spy agency, um, and various national security experts always hold Australia up as the example. Now, I think everybody knows that foreign registries aren't perfect. Um, you know, you have to work at them. Uh, you might need to refine them, but it's a step in the right direction. We, you know, we we need to start sending a signal that you cannot do this. You cannot represent another country, uh, especially a hostile country um, like China, and not and expect to keep it under wraps. You you've uh, you've got to it's got to be public information. Patricia Adams is executive director of China Watchdog Probe International. That's based in Toronto, Canada. And we're talking about Chinese meddling in Canada's election system, but even deeper going into research and university sectors. Now, Patricia, Trudeau obviously is on the back foot here, but his Liberal Party, uh, the centre-left Liberal Party, they've accused Conservatives in Canada of using these intelligence leaks to fan fear and suspicion of Chinese-Canadian elected officials. And this is an effort to discredit them and undermine their participation in electoral politics. That's what Trudeau and the Liberals are saying. I mean, is there a danger here of heightened racial profiling of the Chinese community by intelligence services, and that could target potentially, you know, innocent Chinese-Canadians? I don't think so. And here's why. The, the most vocal 
and really the bravest uh, people speaking out about this issue are indeed Canadians of Chinese descent. And they have been speaking out for a long time. They have been testifying before parliamentary committees for years saying, we are being threatened. We are being intimidated. We have Chinese police stations in Canada and they were not shut down. Uh, no diplomats were expelled because no Chinese diplomats were expelled because of these police stations. And these police stations, um, and, and they don't even have to be in Canada. The, the intimidation can, can come directly from Canada or from, from China. But the, the Chinese Canadians are the ones who see it, they feel it, they understand it. And they have been warning uh, police and our law enforcement and our intelligence uh, agencies for many years, and generally, what happens is they're ignored. Um, you know, many of these people have testified before these parliamentary committees, and it's risky for them to do so. Um, so, you know, one of the considerations for a public inquiry would be that there would be an opportunity for these people to testify in camera, so that their faces and their their names are not disclosed. This is a real threat that they face, and they are the ones who are uh, making really the strongest argument in defense of democracy to expose what is going on. So I, I think that this is a, it's just a bogus juvenile argument. And in fact, one of the things that the, the uh, Canadians of Chinese descent say, this argument that the, the Liberal Party is making is straight out of the, the Chinese Communist Party playbook. That's what they say. Whenever whenever we criticize the Chinese Communist government, as uh, as we have done over the Meng Wanzhou case that you referred to, um, mm. the, the, the Chinese uh, ambassador said, you know, Canadians are white supremacists. Well, you know, people really laughed at that. I mean, yeah. that is nonsense. People don't believe it. Well, well, Canada is a member of NATO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Alliance. If Trudeau continues to push back and not have a public inquiry, say, um, I mean, could this scandal bring down the Trudeau government? I mean, how's it coping politically now, given these revelations? I think it could bring the government down. Wow. And, and I think that you are right. Um, and, and indeed, a lot of national security uh, experts that are testifying before Parliament uh, say that our, our allies don't trust us anymore. And I think they're right. Uh, the information is not secure. The intelligence that comes through to the government is ignored. Um, there are leaks. Uh, and I think the U.S., for example, will make nice sounding statements about how Canada is a, a, a partner. But in fact, there was a recent article in the Washington Post that revealed that, in fact, they consider uh, Canada useless at, mm. at best as a as a national security partner. And at worst, it is so compromised that it is dangerous for the U.S. to share information. So I think people in the security services are extremely concerned about the effect of the negligence by the the uh, Canadian government in its treatment of national security information, and uh, and especially because of the impact that it's going to have on our Five Eyes partner, on NATO, on uh, various other alliances. Yeah, well, what will it take for Trudeau to be mugged by reality? Because uh, you remember at the <laughs> end of the APEX summit late last year, there was a, a public stoush. It was right on television between Trudeau and Xi Jinping. Remember that? 
Oh, certainly. Uh, that was a very interesting exchange. The first report uh, about leaked documents coming out of CSIS uh, had occurred just before Trudeau went to the APEC meeting, and he did not have a, uh, a meeting with Xi Jinping. So we, as far as I understand, he sort of buttonholed him in the hall and um, had a, an exchange and then later um, mm -hmm. said to the press that he had told Xi Jinping that he must not he must not interfere in our elections. And then later, Xi Jinping buttonholed him yeah. in the hallways and basically gave him a dressing down. <laughs> I thought that was a very interesting exchange because Trudeau had no option but to stand up for Canadian electrical, electoral integrity. But uh, but I think Xi Jinping, he knows what's going on. He knows there's interference. He knows there's meddling in the election. And and he knows as people now realize that that this has been helping the Liberal Party. How dare Trudeau uh, to to um, scold him yeah. uh, and re reveal this to the public? So he turned around and scolded Trudeau in public. So I think that was a, a very revealing moment. And it was at the, right at the beginning of the disclosure of, um, of the election interference that had been going mm. on. Well, Patricia, this issue of uh, Chinese interference in Canada's political system, this has hardly got any attention in the Australian media. So thanks so much for enlightening our listeners, Patricia. Great to have you back on the program. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Patricia Adams, she's from the China watchdog Probe International in Toronto, Canada. Now, before we go, just a clarification about last week's political quiz question. Remember, I was chatting with Michael Eason. He's author of a new book called Whitlam's Foreign Policy. And Michael mentions that Whitlam, as opposition leader, met Lyndon Baines Johnson in the Oval Office in 1967. That was shortly after Whitlam became Labor leader. I then asked, who are the other two federal opposition leaders to have met a president in the Oval Office? Well, one was Arthur Corwell, who met John F. Kennedy in 1963. The other was John Hewson, who met President George H.W. Bush in 1991, not 1992, as I mistakenly said. Now, <laughs> a rule for quizmasters is they should know the precise answers before asking the questions. <laughs> That's it for Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.